0: Listening to Treasuring Scripture, a podcast of the weekly teaching ministry of Lebanon Baptist Church, Roswell, Georgia. To learn more about our ministry, please visit us at LebanonBaptist.org. Well, thank you, McCullough's, for sharing about how God is moving there and that key area of the world. And uh, it is good for me to be home from another area that we are targeting. Uh, Many of you know I was gone last Sunday. I was on our vision trip to Utah. And I bring, of course, greetings from many of our missionaries. Got to visit really all of our missionaries there in Utah and got to see God doing some amazing things. In fact, I got to witness uh, some of the baptisms of people who have come to Christ. And so uh, thank you for your investment and all all of these areas and look forward to seeing what God is going to continue to do in and through our church even next week as we get ready for our fall festival and praying that God would use us to reach Atlanta. Well, it was a number of weeks ago, as I was just going through my personal devotions, that I was once again reminded of a text in the book of Psalms verse 85. It says this, will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? I read that, I did what I often do when I want to memorize a text or be reminded of it. I wrote it on a three by five card. And, And that's the prayer of my heart. God, will you not revive us? Your people again, that your people may rejoice in you. Now, no doubt, if you're here this morning, you're uh, you're going through life. But the question is, are you rejoicing? Some of you, after a Saturday of losses with your ball teams, maybe you're not rejoicing. Maybe you're mourning. You know what God wants us to do? He wants us to be able to rejoice but not in ball teams or in this life, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? That is what revival is. When you are a person that is rejoicing no matter the circumstances in the Lord, in him, that is how you make it through life. Rejoicing in our God because he is where it's all at. He is the preeminent one. My desire is that God would do a fresh revival amongst his people. How many of you ever witnessed, not to answer this, but witnessed a true heaven sent revival? I can tell you in high school, I remember seeing God do an amazing work in my high school. We had been praying for a year that God would begin to work within our high school, that people would rejoice in the Lord and come to know him. And I can remember my senior year experiencing, really for the first time, what I would say was a heaven-sent revival among God's people. What does God use in order to revive his people? To accomplish this verse what does he use well he uses his word he uses his word preached and explained of course the bible says that faith comes by what hearing and hearing by the what the word of god god uses his word being proclaimed that will ignite in, in many of our hearts a passion anew for him One book in our Bibles that God has used often in reviving his people is the book of Romans. It was in the fourth century. A man by the name of Augustine read the text in Romans chapter 13. This text, Romans 13 verses 12 through 14 He read, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And here Augustine was living in this and God used this text in Romans to awaken. Awaken him to revival. It was Martin Luther during the Great Reformation. It was as he studied Romans and he began to grasp its presentation of justification by faith that God ignited the Protestant Reformation by people understanding the truths that were given. There in the book of Romans, John Wesley, Wesleyanism, many of you are familiar with him. John Wesley attended a Moravian prayer meeting, and as they were in that prayer meeting, they were reading... Luther's, Martin Luther's preface to Romans he had written a commentary on it and they were explaining it and it was at that meeting that John Wesley was converted and his life radically changed in many ways through Romans even within our own assembly Mark and Stephanie Krakmeyer have told us that it was through the study of Romans that as they were making their way through, that God ignited and and brought them to faith in Christ. My prayer is as today we begin a series in the book of Romans is that God would move amongst Lebanon Baptists to church and would revive us again. That God's people would rejoice in him. Let me ask that you would pray that prayer. That God would revive his church. This morning we begin a series on the book of Romans. We will uh, dive into it. There'll be times that I may pull away for a little bit and do a side series, but today we get a chance to begin that journey. So where do we begin? How do you start? Well, let me give you just some quick background information, and we will have much more introductory material as the series progresses. What do we know about this letter to the Romans? Well, of course, we're going to learn that it was written by the Apostle Paul, and uh, written by Paul, but of course, many of us know that it is inspired of God, so what Paul wrote was none other than what God wanted written so that what he recorded was none other than God's word to us so it was written by the apostle Paul it was written to the church in Rome now when I say the church in Rome I'm not meeting the catholic church was which was not in existence at that time It was a church that they had embraced the gospel and it was a mixture of both Jews and Gentiles, non-Jews, who had been coming to faith. And we know that it's a mixture is because later when you get to the end of Romans, he's discussing issues that came as a result of having Jews and Gentiles within the same congregation. Read Romans 14 and 15. Paul... He had not planted this church, neither had he visited it. He was hoping, as we'll find out in the letter, to at some point use them as kind of a launching point for more of ministry. His desire was to get to Spain at some point. So this church, not having been founded by him, probably had been founded by believers who had come to Christ, possibly even after the day of Pentecost, when Peter preached that sermon and people were from all over the world, as they came to Christ, they took the gospel out and somehow a church got planted there in Rome and was growing and maturing. We also learned that it was written from Corinth. Not too far away. Of course, many of you know where Italy is. Of course, right across, you could say the Adriatic Sea was the, the country of Greece. And right in the middle of Greece was Corinth. And we believe that it was written from Corinth because we hear him talk about Gaius and Phoebe and Erastus who were people who were at the church at Corinth. So it's really clear this is where it's coming from. It was written around A.D. 57. I say around, There, you have like a little ballpark time period. They believe that it was written around this time during a three-month stay that Paul had while he was there in Greece. We know of these dates... We know of Paul's somewhat chronology of when he lived and when he when he uh, served in various cities, because of our Bibles and it explaining his missionary journeys, but also due to archaeological confirmation. In the Book of Acts, it talks about how Paul stood before a man by the name of Gallio, and as he stood before Gallio, we know that he it's, he. Uh, he was under his particular jurisdiction, but as you study your a Bible and you study archaeology, you figure out that Gallio only lived for or, or only served for about one year in Corinth. So it's kind of the pinpoint, you know, okay, this is when Paul happened to be on that missionary journey in Corinth. And so we kind of set up our Pauline chronology due to that particular event. So what that does is it gives us pretty accurate idea of when Paul actually wrote this letter. In fact, uh, in Acts chapter 18, years before, in fact, I have a verse here. When Paul visited Corinth for the first time, it says this, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. So we know on Paul's second missionary journey, There was a couple that was there in Corinth who ended up having to leave Rome because of Claudius, who was the emperor, had expelled all the Jews. We know when Claudius was reigning, and we know that he kicked people out for a certain amount of time. In fact, it was the next generation, a Roman historian by the name of Suetonius, Seem to reference Claudius' expulsion of Jews. And he writes about it. And he says it was all instigated by this man by the name of Crestus, which many of us believe was actually him miswriting. It was in reference to a dissension about Crestus. No, Christus, who had caused great turmoil in Rome because. In the, in the Jewish synagogues, people were hearing about Christ and there were now dissensions back and forth within those synagogues. So what did Claudius do? He's just going to kick the Jews out of Rome. So what happens is when you get to AD 57, what you're realizing is the church in Rome that Paul's writing to because claudius had died now the jews who had been expelled were starting to return there and the congregation there in rome was now getting an influx of the jews who were moving back into the area so you got these jews and you got these gentiles and you have a possible dissensions that could arise and so we know it's being written during this particular period why was it written well It was written for three main reasons, there's probably a number of reasons, but it was written to promote unity amongst the church. It was written to solicit help, because he wanted help to take the gospel far beyond Rome. And finally it was written so that they would glorify God, and that more people would glorify God. And the final thing I'll just give you as a basic uh, background data, it was written on the theme of the gospel the great message of God. What are we going to do today? During our remaining time, I would like to begin to explore the interior of this book by looking and examining the salutation. Say the salutation, those of you who've taken English uh, grammar and have had to write letters, normally the salutation is the greeting. The to and the from. So today, let's look at Romans chapter... One. Now, uh, as a side note, many of you know that oftentimes when I start a series, I do buy a journaling copy of the book of Romans. And if you're interested in getting a copy of this, uh, we bought 50 of them and they're on the back table by the offering box. Uh, they cost $5. You can just put it in the offering box. You can also order them on Amazon if you want to and have them at your house tomorrow uh, for a dollar more. Okay. So if you want to do that, let me encourage you encourage you, uh, we will be making our way through the book for a time, and this gives you a place to write your notes. But let me read to you from Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Father, guide me as I explain these verses Would you help us to behold wondrous things out of your law? And Lord, may we be changed as a result. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Amen. How do you introduce yourself? Let's say that you met somebody today or this week, how do you normally introduce who you are? I know for most of us, we often give maybe where we're from. Hey, my name's Brian, and if it's someone here oh, I, from Atlanta, I live in Roswell. Uh, or if it's, uh, and they're, they're from Roswell, oh I, oh, I live off Cox Road. Or uh, or let's say you're in Florida, and I'm from, I'm, I'm from Florida, and I, I meet somebody. Oh, I'm Brian. I, I was born in Miami, Florida. Or uh, I, don't know, I was out in Utah this past week. Oh, uh, who are you? Oh, my name is Brian Peterson. I'm from Georgia. We oftentimes associate who we are and identify ourselves by where we live. Sometimes it's by what you do. Oh, I'm, I'm Brian. I'm I'm. A pastor at Lebanon Baptist Church, or maybe you introduce yourself i 'm a housewife or i, I, I work at such and such a school or or i 'm an engineer i 'm a doctor i 'm a librarian. We often identify ourselves by our occupation sometimes it 's who we 're associated with okay i oh my name 's brian i 'm jen 's husband, or now as your your kids get a little older oh i 'm I'm, Anna's dad and uh, or I'm I'm such and such grandpa and some of you are okay or I'm spots owner okay if you're at the dog park okay Uh, in our text this morning Paul introduces himself with I believe his most significant identifier and it's this His identity in the gospel. If there is anything you ought to be, that ought to drive you and identify you, there is something that trumps all other identifications, and that is your identification in the gospel, in Christ. So he identifies himself by way of the gospel, but then he also identifies his audience in reference to the work of the gospel in their lives and in our text verses 1 through 7 we learn an important truth and it's this we ought to live by our identity in the gospel identify yourself by that live by it allow your whole life to flow From your identity that came about because of the gospel. I'll tell you, if you are going to stabilize your life, some of you, you're being, your life is being tossed to and fro by discouragement, depression, by the various events that are going on in your life. If you are going to be able to stabilize your life, there's only one person who can do that. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly of heart, and ye shall find what? Rest unto your souls. You've got to identify and fix your life on your identity in Christ. You've got to know who you are and where you're at. Normally, if you're like, let's say you show up, you don't normally show up at malls anymore because malls are like a distant to the past. But you remember years ago when you had a mall and you were trying to find a certain store and you saw the big map there? What did you look for first? You looked for the little dot that says you are what? You are here. And if you were going to get to the other place, you had to know where you're at. And if you're going to navigate your way to where you're supposed to be, you've got to establish not where you are, but who you are in Christ. And it's that that will drive your life. And Paul wants to do that for himself here at the beginning of the letter, and also for the Romans, who he is writing to, if they're going to see progress and he's going to help them achieve unity, he needs to remind them of who they are in Christ. Too many of us waver in our lives because we often get bumped off thinking about our identity in Christ. And so this morning, let me just encourage you, and as I'm teaching you this truth about living by your identity in Christ, I'm going to give you three truths. And the first is this, identify yourself in the gospel. When Paul begins his epistles, okay, normally he begins with a, as I said, a salutation. Now, as you compare Romans with all of Paul's other epistles, Romans is very different in one way. Romans is unusually long. In fact, if you look at all the other epistles, most of them, others only have a half dozen words between from and to. Because normally, they're a little bit different from us. When they wrote letters, they identify themselves first, and then they write who they're writing to. We often say to such and such, and then we put at the end, from, he begins with from, and then goes to to. But in between that, Romans is different in that it has 71 words between the from and the to. In fact, it's all one sentence in the Greek. No doubt part of that reason that he spends extra time here is Paul hasn't visited this church, but even more, he's seeking to lay a foundation of the gospel that he shared even from the beginning words that he gives to them. And in it, this little salutation, Paul foreshadows many of the themes in this book in fact, the book starts with the salutation and it ends with a doxology. And if you look at the, both the salutation and the doxology, you'll find that he brackets this entire book with the same themes. Things that show up in the salutation are going to show up in the doxologies like this. I'm going to start here and I'm going to end here because I want you to remember what I'm giving you here. And so what you see played out in this particular salutation are many of the themes of the book. Now notice what he says in verse 1. He says this, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So right out of the gate, what is Paul doing here? Paul identifies himself first of all by his Roman name. Many of you know he had a Hebrew name. What was his Hebrew name? Saul. Really close, okay. But because he ministered to the Gentiles, he adopted his Roman name, which was Paul. But then he identifies three aspects of the gospel's work in his life. So when he says, hey, let me tell you about three things about myself, none of them have to do necessarily with some of the things I could have introduced myself with. They all were grounded in the work of the gospel. Notice the first of all, he calls himself a servant of Christ Jesus. That word servant in the Greek language is the word doulos, which is the word slave. Paul now refers to himself because of the gospel as a servant of Jesus Christ. When Paul met Jesus, many of you know the story, Acts chapter 9, if you want to read it. In Acts chapter 9, when he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, his life is changed for good. He had served himself all of those years. But when he met Christ, you know who he wanted to live for? Christ. Everything is Christ. Lebanon Baptist Church right now, who do you live for? Who do you give your life for? Is it for you and your own promotion? Is it for you and your agenda for that day? Those who come to Christ and anchor their lives in the gospel realize that, you know what? I no longer have the reins of my life. For for me to live is what? Christ. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I what? I live, yet not I, but Christ lives through me. Your life is now no longer yours. It's all his. And that's what Paul did because of the gospel. He says, I am now a slave of Jesus Christ. Whatever he wants me to do, I want to do that. Who do you serve? Do you know him? If you know Christ, of course, consider it and give your life to him. So not only that, he identifies himself as a servant of Christ, but he also identifies himself as one, it says, called to be an apostle. Now it's interesting for him, his conversion happened at the same time of his appointment to an office. Many of you know that the day he came to Christ... Jesus also told him that he was going to be a vessel, a chosen vessel for him to take the gospel to the Gentiles and to kings and to all these people in the world. So his conversion was inexplicably linked with his commissioning. And so when he saw Christ and he was commissioned by him. He had a new job, and, and he says here, "I was called to be an apostle." Just so you're aware, an apostle was someone who had some criteria in order to be an apostle. They had to have seen the risen Christ. Okay, none of you in this room have seen the risen Christ. You've seen portrayals of the risen Christ. But none of you have seen him. Paul actually saw the risen Christ and had been commissioned by him. That's why you call him an apostle. There was a limited number of them. They were in the first century. That's why you don't call me Apostle Brian, okay? But he was an apostle and he was called to do that. And when he got called to do what he was called to do, that's how he identified himself from that point. Notice that he didn't say, Paul a servant of Jesus Christ, a tent maker from Tarsus. He didn't associate himself as that. That wasn't his reality anymore. Yes, he was a tent maker and he was from Tarsus, but something that trumped whatever he did was this, his spiritual calling. And that spiritual calling was this. God has called me to spread the word of God to the Gentiles and to kings And so I identify with that. That was his priority. Now as a reminder, now some of you may not have been called to be, I mean all of you have not been called to be an apostle, but he has called you with a holy calling. If you are a Christian, you are to display that. And before you are an an attorney, and before you are a business owner, and before you are a student, if you have been called by Jesus Christ, you are a child of God who has been commissioned by him to be a... Be someone who spreads his name to the ends of the world. That's your priority. I am called to be an apostle. It trumped his tent making, okay? What's your priority? What do you live for? So when he identifies himself, he says, number one, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. I am called to be an apostle. What has God called you? And just study that whole idea of calling on your life. He has called you to certain things. He called Paul to be an apostle, and that's how he identified himself. But number three, he identifies himself as one set apart for the gospel of God. That term, set apart, could have been a little play on words with Paul. Remember before his conversion, he was part of a certain sect. You remember what the name of that sect was? He was a what? A Pharisee. What does the word Pharisee mean? It literally means this, set apart. He was a set apart one. And when he says this, he could have been just playing on words. He says, I was someone who was set apart from the Gentiles. But now I have been set apart to the Gentiles for the gospel of God. That is what I live for. So he introduces himself in reference to the gospel work that God had put into his life and that he had been a recipient of. You have been set apart. If you're here today and you truly have been called by God into his family, you have been set apart to be, as I said, a someone who makes disciples disciples. I mean, I have, when I was uh, installed as pastor here 10 years ago, uh, one of the gifts I got from a dear friend from my first ministry was he gave me a beautiful Mont Blanc pen, okay? And that pen, since that day, has been set apart for certain types of writing, and I don't just use it all the time. I use it for specific things. It's set apart, You, in a beautiful way, have been set apart by God for what? You've been set apart by the gospel for the gospel. He redeemed you to display his glory to the world. And and in order for you, as you progress in your spiritual life, the Bible says you are to add to your faith virtue. And what is virtue? Virtue is embracing your very mission of why you were created. You were created to display God's glory. And Paul, as he introduces himself, he roots this whole book in who he is in the gospel. The gospel changed his entire trajectory. It did for Paul and it should for you. Do you personally see your new role as a servant of Jesus Christ? Is that how you identify yourself? Do you see your spiritual calling? Does that trump all your other callings? Yes, all of them are important. And God has asked you to exercise dominion on this earth and he calls you to work. I'm not saying abandon whatever you're doing. What I'm saying is this, prioritize whatever you're doing. But is the gospel the chief identifier of your life? More than you are a resident of Georgia or a Braves fan or Will's dad or a grandpa, let me tell you, all of the other identifiers that you have in your life at some point will disappoint you, and they will fail you. But if you continue to identify yourself as a servant of Jesus Christ called by him, set apart by the gospel. Let me tell you, that gives you traction. That gives you foundation. That gives you the ability to take the next step. So he identifies himself, number one, by the gospel. Let me encourage you to do that as well. But not only does he do that, he also does this next. He rehearses the gospel and so i 'm going to encourage you to rehearse to yourself the Gospel because that 's what he 's doing is he 's writing to these uh, romans he 's rehearsing the Gospel but he 's rehearsing it to them. What do we learn about the Gospel here in the Salutation? Well, Paul now establishes common ground with them with these truths. So what is the Gospel? Well, we learn in verse two that it is uh, or excuse me in verse uh, three. That it is, or no, go back to in verse one, uh, I'm going to get it right at some point. It is the gospel of what? God. It is God's gospel. This is the creator of the universe's good news. No doubt all of you have had good news before. Maybe it's good news because your team won yesterday. You're one of the happy ones but there's someone who has good news that is above everybody's news. Okay? whenever Prince Charles was born years ago, that was good news to the realm of England. The king has been born, and it kind of trumped all, probably all the other people that were born that day because that news was bigger in England than any other birth. When God has good news... It trumps every other good news. And the gospel is God's gospel. It is the greatest news that could ever, you could ever imagine. So what is it about? It's, it's from God. It's about God. This great gospel news was something that not only was a good news, it was planned news. Look what it says in verse 2. Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures. The gospel is something that is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament. Most of you have a Bible today, and your Bible is made up of 66 books. 39 of them are of your Old Testament, and all 39 of those books are shouting to you and prophesying to you and telling you how God in uh, in eternity past planned something, and that was to bring his son into this world. And I'd encourage you, those of you who are investigating the claims of Christ, that you would investigate even the Old Testament and see how Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of all of those. So the great news that Paul's pronouncing here was a God's gospel, but it was planned beforehand. Okay, going back to uh, King Charles, he will be coronated at some point. I think they've nailed down the date of next March. When he gets coronated, they will plan tons. It will be incredibly precise. Everything will go, hopefully, just as planned. Let me say something that was, trumps all of that. There is a God who planned the bringing of his son into this world, where it says this, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, So, this gospel is planned, but not only that, it is centered in God's Son, Jesus Christ. Look what it says in verse 3 concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. Here we find the nexus of the gospel. Who is the center of everything? It is God's Son. This shows us, too, that God initially is a relational being, he has a Son. And he is one who relates to us and can know us and interact with us. It speaks of the Trinity. But Jesus is now identified in two stages. He is one descended from King David in the flesh. That, of course, was a fulfillment of God's plan. Many of you know that King David, the guy who slew Goliath, he wanted to build God a house one day. And he goes to Nathan, and he says, hey, Nathan, can I build God a house? I want to build him a temple. And Nathan says, oh, yeah, go ahead and do it. But then Nathan is told, oh, you shouldn't have told him to do that. And so Nathan has to go back and says, David, I'm sorry, you can't build God his house. Of course, we know his son's going to build it, Solomon. But God says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to build you a house, God says. And the idea and the prophecy was this, there's going to become a king who's going to come from your loins, who ultimately is going to rule the world forever. And what this text tells us is the gospels about Jesus. And one of the stages of his revelation was that he came in the flesh, Jesus of Nazareth. That's who he was. That's who the disciple says, and we have seen him, we have touched him. Our hands have handled him, the word of life. That's who Jesus was. Jesus was God, the eternal God, who incarnated and was born of a virgin in the line of David and who lived a flawless life on earth. That is the gospel. But not only did he show himself and reveal himself in the flesh as a son of David, the son of David... But he also unveiled his power at the resurrection. Look what it says in verse 4. And was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, this is not saying, just so you know, that Jesus became the son of God at his resurrection. He has eternally been the son of God. But God made a statement at his resurrection, and he did it powerfully. He, he resurrected from the grave. And what happened and what Paul expresses here is how God in many ways made a huge statement at the resurrection that this is my son. He has conquered death. And that's why every Sunday really is a celebration of the resurrection. I remember when I was, uh, I think it was high school or college, uh, there was a little phrase that became popular when a guy dunked over another guy that he got posterized. Posterized. And at some point, you're going to see it on a poster that this guy slamming over this other guy. And it was like a statement. Well, let me just say, God posterized Satan. He made the most incredible statement at the resurrection. He showed through his birth and through his life that he was God in the flesh. But through his resurrection, he shows us, you know what, how he powerfully overcame death. And then we're introduced, of course, here at the beginning of Romans to the third person of the Trinity. That's who it's talking about. The spirit of holiness is mentioned here. And then Christ's name is extended and we get the extended name here. It says, Jesus, Christos, the Messiah, our what? Our Lord, our Kurios, Where is the Old Testament, our Adonai. He is the Lord of all the earth. He is the ascended one. And right here at the beginning of Romans, as Paul writes in his salutation, he is establishing a very clear Christology. And then he shows how the gospel has amazing results. He then gives those results in verse 5. He says this, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of the faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Did you know that it is through Jesus? And it is only through Jesus that you and I receive grace. What is grace? Grace is unmerited favor. It is through him he pours out his grace on you. And not only that, you also receive purpose. For Paul, he received apostleship. And the end of all of this was Paul's new purpose in life was this, to bring about the obedience of the faith. Now, I don't have time because I'm already ran out of it this morning. But I don't have a time to give you an extended explanation of obedience of faith. It is either faith that results in obedience or obedience that is the faith. They're intertwined. I like how Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the famous Christian during the Nazi regime who, who gave his life in many ways... As he, he sought to spread Christianity during that time. But he said this, only he who believes is obedient. And only he who is obedient believes. And they're intertwined. Paul says, my new purpose is this. I want to bring people to the obedience of the faith. That's his end. And what is it for? It's for the sake of his name. It's Jesus' name that is for all Everyone needs to rejoice in it. He's the end. It's talking about him. The gospel is about Jesus' name being affirmed among all nations. This morning you heard from the Macaulay. And, and their their desire is to that God's name would be lifted up among all the nations, all the people groups. And that's what Paul says. Paul says, this is the gospel. It's that God's name would be revered and known and his fame would spread to all the world. And Paul now says how it impacted Rome and he knew it. Verse six, he says this, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So as Paul's closing out his salutation, he says, you know what God's done? He's included you. And guess what you do now? You belong to Christ. You belong to him. He's yours. Lebanon Baptist Church, do you know the gospel? Do you know these truths? Do you identify with it? Are these what get you up in the morning? Are these what drive your life? Has that changed the entire trajectory of your life? Paul was going this way, and when he met the gospel, his life went this way. And he, that was the foundation of everything that he did. But he ends with this. He doesn't simply identify himself in reference to the gospel, and he doesn't simply rehearse the gospel to them Now to the Romans, he identifies them in the gospel. Look what he says in verse 7, the last verse of our text. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As he writes these believers, he begins by identifying two key features about them. They're this, you are loved by God. And number two, you have been called to be holy once. These ideas are so intertwined. Notice that love precedes this, God and his great love. Let God's love sink in to you. God loves you. You have been loved by God. But not only that, I mean, he'll explore love in Romans chapter 8. But you've been called to be holy ones. Your lifestyle should now show it. And then Paul, as he closes out the salutation, he extends two gifts to them that they get through God. And one of them is this, grace. You know, normally, okay, normally in letters, If you were to write a Greco-Roman letter, which many of you, you're not going to write a Greco-Roman letter, but if you were at that day and you were to send a letter, you may have said, okay, Brian, a pastor from Roswell, sends you greetings. Paul doesn't use the word greetings. Whenever he opens his letters, he opens with a particularly Christian way of greeting somebody. He uses the word grace. And it's this. It's so consumed him. Grace is God's unmerited mercy to undeserving sinners. He says, grace to you. God's given this to you. That's why I often send my letters when I, in my letters, I say grace with you. As Paul often ends, he starts with grace and he often ends with grace. He says, grace to you. You get this all through the gospel. He reminds them, you have received Grace. And then number two, he says, and peace. And notice, grace comes before peace. Peace is what comes as a result of you receiving grace. It is that blessed, you could say, that blessedness birthed from grace. And it all comes to you through the conduit, as it says at the end of verse seven, through God the Father and Jesus Christ, his son. It is because, it is because of what God's done that this whole relationship began. So I hate that it's, I've taken too long, but Lebanon Baptist Church, as Paul opens this letter to Romans, in order for him to be able to navigate some of the greatest truths that he'll ever share He establishes himself and he begins by identifying himself in the gospel, by rehearsing the gospel to them, and by reminding them that they have been recipients of the gospel. And that it is because of who you are, and it's because of grace, you can do all of these things. You know, so often in my own counseling, in my own helping people, it's so easy to do this. You need to do this. You need to do this. You need to do this. And we give people a bunch of rules of what they need to do in order to see victory. You know, probably a lot of churches around Roswell today, there are going to be a lot of rules given. You need to do this, this, this. Where does Paul begin? Does he begin with the rules? No, he begins with the grace of God. And because God has done this, and because God has done this, and because God has done this, let me explain to you how to live. He identifies the truths of the gospel. Lebanon Baptist Church, live your identity in the gospel. Do you identify with this? Is this your identity? Is this what gets you up every morning? If the gospel does not consume you, Lebanon Baptist Church, if it is something that you don't think about every day, if it is not something you drink from and eat from and ground yourself to, who have you actually met? Who actually is your Lord? When God saves people, he changes people. And God utterly changed Paul. And he will change you. And it is from that foundation that you move forward in your spiritual life. And if you're going to be able to do and understand the truths of Romans, the foundation of it is who you are in the gospel. And if you have not embraced it yet, the good thing is buckle your seatbelts. We're going to get it. Because that's the theme of this book. So will he not revive us again? Will he? My heart is that God would do that. Will you join me, Father? Will you use Romans again in your people's lives? Will you use it again? Will you use it in Lebanon Baptist Church? No doubt there are people sitting in these seats today who may profess you, but don't possess you. They are still their own ruler. They have never submitted to the king. And Lord, would you use this book to allow them to rejoice and not in their nest egg, not in their nice house, not in their children. But would they rejoice in you? With your heads bowed and eyes closed, let me ask you this, this morning. How many you say, Pastor Brian? I believe that my life is one that I love rejoicing in the gospel. I don't do it all the time, but you know what? I love the gospel. I try to think about it every day. And that is the grounding of my life. With your heads bowed and eyes closed, you can say as a testimony of your own life, I believe that is my life. My, I'm fixed on the gospel. If that's you, would you raise your hand as a testimony of what God's done to you? Okay. Many of you. How I many say, Pastor Brian, I believe that is, but you know what? I am not living by the gospel. I've gotten off track and I need God to revive me again. And I'm going to ask God over this series that he would rekindle in me a love and a passion to serve him. If that's you, and you say, Brian, would you just join me in praying? Because you know, all of us go through segments like this. You say, pray that God would use this book to radically change me. If that's you, would you raise your hand and say, pray for me, Pastor Brian, about that. I see it. I see all those hands. How many would say this? How many say, Pastor Brian, I'm investigating the gospel. I don't know if I'm a follower of Jesus, but you know what? You pray that God would open my heart. If he's real, that he would use Romans to show me that I need to be converted. If that's you, you'd say, Pastor Brian, pray for me that God would use this to awaken me. If that's you, would you raise your hand? Father, now would you use... This particular book over the course of these next number of months to radically change our church to be who we are supposed to be rejoicing in you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel in the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret from long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the commandment of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. You're dismissed. Thank you for listening to Treasuring Scripture. It's our desire that every Christian treasure God's word in their heart. To follow our podcast, please hit the subscribe button. If you're interested in learning more about our church, please visit lebanonbaptist.org.